Welcome to You're Not Crazy, Gospel Sanity for Young Pastors, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition. I'm Ray Ortland, and I'm here with my co-host and friend and partner in crime, Sam Alberry. Hey, Ray. <laughs> now, something we like to do at Emmanuel Church, we call it fascinating facts, because everybody is fascinating. Everybody. And you just have to, uh, you know, ask a leading question, and the fascinatingness starts showing up. So, Sam, tell us one fascinating fact about you. Um, I was once threatened with hospitalization by a circus clown. <laughs> what? Wait a minute. <laughs> so, what happened? Uh, thankfully, he didn't attack me in the end. I was, I wasn't. This is back in, in my teenage days. I was an eco warrior, and a few of us were protesting outside a circus that we were led to believe was mistreating an elephant. And the head clown came out and said that he would put us in hospital if, if anyone was turned away because of our presence. Okay. I think I was I, 16 at the time, so I was a little bit scared. I've always been scared of clowns, and now I'm even more scared of clowns. <laughs> okay. My fascinating fact is I saw the Beatles live in concert. I think it was August 26, 1966. It was their next to the last public concert ever. Of course, with the exception of the January 69 um, sort of impromptu concert on the uh, uh, roof of the you know, Apple studio in London. But that wasn't really a concert. But they went from L.A. This was in Dodger Stadium in L.A. They went up from there to the next day to do San Francisco. And then it was over. It was history. And uh, it was fun to see the Beatles. I paid $2.00. To see the Beatles live. <laughs> wow. It was fun. Okay. Now, you're not crazy. Gospel sanity for young pastors. Why are we talking about gospel sanity? Yeah, what we're trying to say is that there, there shouldn't be a disconnect between the grace of Jesus as we receive it in the gospel and church life. And yet so often there is. And that's that's gospel insanity. So gospel sanity is saying, let's build out our church life, our church culture around the grace that God has shown to us in Jesus. Are you saying that a church can be orthodox in doctrine, pure as the driven snow, faithfulness in the doctrinal statement that's on the subpage of the website, right? And gospel insane simultaneously? Yeah, I mean, it's so easy to do. I've, I've, I feel that inclination in my own heart. We, we take good and precious truths that we've received from God, truths that we genuinely believe, and we sort of put them in a mental drawer somewhere, and they don't necessarily shape the way we live, the way we, we conduct ourselves, the, the posture we have with other people. And church-wide, that can then mean a church has impeccably orthodox doctrinal standards, and yet can be quite a graceless reality hmm. when you yeah. actually get there. Yeah. A church can unsay by its culture what it says by its doctrine and not even realize it. Yeah. And that's truly insane. It is. Um, yeah, I think of it this way, Sam. The gospel says something and the gospel does something. Hmm. The gospel says the truths of Christ crucified, buried, risen again, and returning. What the gospel does through what it says is create beauty in human relationships. 
the vertical glories mm. of the gospel come down upon us in a church and spread out horizontally. And when a church is only sensitive to what it should be saying and not equally alert and sensitive to what it should be and, and uh, the, the vibe, the tone, the mm. intangibles of that church, then the church can actually counteract what it intends to do. I've, I've seen this myself. I've participated in that. I have nurtured that without even realizing it. I would say, Sam, in the last 10 years, the definite article, most important thing I've learned is gospel culture, which gospel doctrine is there to create. It's, mm. The gospel is both truth and beauty. So that beautiful human relationships are not an afterthought. They're not a layer of niceness on top of serious theology. Those beautiful relationships, beautiful relationships, captivating, humane, gentle, healing, reassuring, that, that relational beauty is in fact what the gospel came down to accomplish. Yeah. And, you know, that it shouldn't surprise us. We're, we're told that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Um, he wasn't full of grace one day and then full of truth the next day. He embodied both, and both of them rightly understood go together in him. If we, if we think we have one of those things without the other, we actually have neither. Yeah. In the last 20, 25 years here in, in our country, uh, we have seen a wonderful resurgence of gospel doctrine, and the Gospel Coalition is very much a part of that. And I myself went through a sort of gospel renaissance about 20 years ago when preaching through Romans at First Presbyterian Church in Augusta, Georgia, I sort of rediscovered justification by faith alone. I rediscovered imputed righteousness. I rediscovered Jesus as our substitute, and so forth. These great doctrines right at the center of the gospel. And uh, it was thrilling. And, and we as a church sort of felt like we, we went through the wardrobe into Narnia in understanding Jesus and seeing him in his grace and glory in a new way. Uh, I don't think that we generally, uh, we kind of gospel coalition types, we have not experienced a corresponding resurgence of relational beauty. Um, I, don't, I don't know anybody in our circles beyond the Gospel Coalition. So I'm no hundred, I know thousands of magnificent Christians all across the country. And we've all been so enriched and strengthened and helped, and the truth of the Gospel has been clarified for us all. We have not had the same resurgence of relational beauty um, I don't know anybody that's downright mean, but I'm, I'm thinking the reason why we're doing this podcast is we need to uh, attend to, very carefully, reverently, joyously, attend to, cultivate, and build the intangibles of relational beauty that the gospel itself calls for and creates. So the you're not crazy part of the title is is really a way of saying... If as a as a church leader you've you've always had a hunch that you know church should have some felt sense of the grace of Christ about it, we're just trying to say you're not crazy for feeling that way. Yeah, 
Yeah, the gospel both talks to us about Christ and his grace and glory and creates in us, among us, a shared experience of his grace and glory as we discover the safety, the gentleness, the respect, the gentle cheerfulness, the freedom of heart, the honesty uh, that the gospel itself creates. Now, how did tell us something about yourself, Sam. How did you personally, how did this get on your radar? This matters to you. You're, you're making this podcast a priority in your life because you care about gospel culture. Why? How did you get there? I think like, like you and, and so many of us, I've, I've, I've seen churches where there felt like a mismatch between the, the beauty of the truth and the beauty of, as you put it, the culture of the church. And I didn't really have words to, to put that into until a few years ago, I think, and began to sort of think, you've always spoken in terms of gospel doctrine and gospel culture. I think that then gave me the categories for thinking, okay, that's why something feels off at this particular church or that particular church is that we've got the doctrine bit and we're kind of super attentive to that and, you know, impeccable on that front. But it doesn't feel like a place where it's safe to confess sin or where there's, grace and forgiveness in abundance um i often think of it in terms of do you are you relieved to walk into church on sunday or do you have to brace yourself to walk into church on sunday um in general terms you know lots of variables one week to the next but actually if if we get the gospel culture piece then we should feel a sense of relief to finally made it is church should be the rivendell we've just been stabbed on weathertop we we find ourselves in rivendell and that's where we can find space and healing and help and care and all of those things we come as these battered refugees in this world needing that kind of spiritual hospital but too often that the, the church can actually be the place where it can feel demanding stressful, um, antagonistic, um, all those sorts of things. I, I, I'll never forget talking to a lady at a, a church I used to be at, and it, it was just a, a, you know, conversation, but the conversation became emblematic of something that I then started to see everywhere. Um, she had She was going through a bit of a crisis, and we hadn't seen her at church for maybe two or three weeks or something like that. And when I eventually was able to catch up with her, I said, you know, we'd love to see you at church. And she said, well, I, I can't come until I'm a bit better. And what she meant by that as we talked was she didn't want people to see her messed up. She didn't want to come back to church until she felt as though she'd got her life back together enough to be able to walk through the door without sort of looking like someone who doesn't have life sorted out and that that was heartbreaking for me to see and she she wasn't even identifying that as a problem it's just the reality and it made me think that's exactly the wrong way around uh church should be the place that we we sprint to when things are at their worst rather than the place we avoid until we've got our kind of instagrammable christianity back in place and, and we're just, you and I are just wondering, what would it be like for thousands of churches across the country 
to find themselves helped into the green pastures and still waters of church is where I hurry to go when I need healing. Mm. How did this, how did you get into all of this? Um, principally, Francis Schaeffer, the Presbyterian uh, theologian, got it on my radar years ago when he talked about the two orthodoxies. Because the, the, that precious lady you were just telling us about, what she was saying about her own church is, my church is not as orthodox as it thinks it is. We're not, at, we're not talking about, again, a, a, just a nicey-nice, smiley-faced layer on top of serious Christianity. We're talking about allowing the gospel itself, the, the, the orthodox truths of the gospel, to have their own native natural authority and let them, let them free to shape us and reshape us. So anyway, Schaefer talked about the two orthodoxies, orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community. So if our churches are not places, I mean, if there's this unspoken but clear sense in any church, I would be crazy to start talking about my real sins in this place. That church is not orthodox. (laughs) So here's how it finally made sense to me. And Sam, it was about 10 years ago on a Tuesday night at Emmanuel Theology for Men at Emmanuel Church here in Nashville. And I don't know how I had the nerve to do this. I don't recommend it. <laughs> but you know, we met from 7 to 9, and we had teaching and conversation, discussion. It was great, great time. But I, I, I don't remember what the context was, but I felt compelled to say, guys, we need to take a new step together tonight. What if... We just break up into twos. Just turn to the guy sitting next to you, whether you know him or not. Why don't you turn to him and tell him the worst thing you've ever done? (laughs) And then that guy will pray for you and then turn it around. He will tell you the worst thing he has ever done and then you'll pray for him. What on earth possessed me? I, I don't know. And... What's even more astonishing is the guy said, okay, and we actually did that. We walked into that time together at 7 p.m. that Tuesday night as acquaintances. We walked out of that room at 9 p.m. as friends and as brothers. And we followed that trajectory thereafter. And in all the years in which we lived in that kind of honesty and vulnerability and transparency together, under the authority of orthodox doctrine, I'm not aware that the trust that guys extended in doing, in in moving forward together that way, I don't know that the trust was ever violated. So, And then what happened next, Sam, for us was uh, a sermon series later that year, 2011, from 1 John chapter 1. And verse 7, of course, says, but if we walk in the light. Now, we know walking in the light is not sinlessness, but it's honesty. We know that from the context here. That's obvious. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, he's not hard to find. 
He's right out there in the light, in the place of honesty, waiting for us with open arms. You know, we tend to hang back in the shadows of concealment, um, what we perceive as self-protection, denial, and sort of faking it with a smile and so forth. But the Lord is out there in the light of honesty waiting for us. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, two things happen. One, we have fellowship with one another. And two, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So what we discovered at Emmanuel Church, we, we felt that we had walked through the wardrobe into Narnia. That the first aspect of gospel culture that landed on us and on me first was honesty. And this, the reason why this means so much to me, Sam, is that 1 John chapter 1 is not describing a denominational option. This is not just for Baptists or Anglicans or Presbyterians. This is just baseline Christianity as opposed to heresy. So a Bible-preaching church where no one can risk honesty is in danger of heresy no matter how pure its theological position might be. Because there are two orthodoxies, orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community. What if thousands of churches across the country become fully orthodox, both in doctrine and in community? Because I, I've experienced what it's like for, for me and for a whole church together, we finally let our guard down. We understand the ground rules between us allow for and even call for vulnerability, gentle transparency, admitting what isn't working in our lives, what's hard for us, the beliefs in the Bible we have reservations about, the patterns of sin in our lives that nobody knows about. I just deeply believe, Sam, church is where I, Ray Ortland, go to make friends with one or two other guys that I trust and respect. Guys that then I let into my life at a deep level. Guys who know what's really going on inside me. And we walk together through life that way. What if a whole church goes there together and this church is a, a gentle network of radical honesty where there's no face-saving, um, no um, self-concealment, and no pretense. Um, and, and we risk transparency with one another. Two things are going to happen there according to 1 John chapter 1. One, we have fellowship. It's like at a dinner party when you're sitting there at the table and the food is great, the conversation's fun, and so on and so forth. And then somebody actually gets real. <laughs> somebody at that table starts talking about what's, what's, what's really hard in life. And everybody at that table immediately realizes, oh, we're going there. <laughs> and the ground rules change, and it gets quiet and gentle and powerful. That's fellowship. It, it just deepens the richness of a relationship, doesn't it? You can be very familiar with someone for the course of years and never really know them. Um, but when someone kind of opens up their heart and spills the beans, um, that, that's a 
depth of relationship that, that wasn't there before. Yes. And then the second thing that happens is, it says here, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's when we start feeling forgiven. Hypothetical forgiveness doesn't really help actual sinners. It's felt forgiveness that helps serious sinners like me. And part of what makes that forgiveness felt is the experience of, I've just shared the worst thing I've ever done, and these people are still talking to me. They still, they still care, they still like me. In fact, they're telling me what they've done, and I still like them. And there's a kind of, it really does embody the forgiveness of God, doesn't it? It's in the New Testament. And you know, Sam, once this, these simple categories, it just took a long time, but gradually, once these simple categories sort of became clear, gospel doctrine, gospel culture, and that gospel doctrine creates gospel culture and has the same authority as gospel doctrine. Once that became clear, I began to see it all over the New Testament. And I realized there's been a whole dimension of my ministry that I just hadn't ever seen before. I, I hadn't embraced, I hadn't cultivated, I hadn't been attentive to. I think it's a danger, isn't it? When we rightly are captivated by truth and as you found teaching through Romans, you, you want to get doctrine right, it matters. You, and particularly if you're, you're predisposed to being a thinky type of person anyway, it's easy for us to sort of so focus on, I've got to get this doctrine right, I've got to get this belief correct. It's easy to then just to have a natural blind spot to, well, hang on, what is this doctrine I'm, I'm being very correct about? What is it meant to be producing through me into the lives of other people and, and vice versa? I think for years, Sam, as a pastor, I didn't even realize that emphasizing doctrine only actually fed my pride. And uh, the, the in, intellectual, not overly intellectual, I don't think it's possible to be overly intellectual, but it is possible to be under-relational. The, over, the, the intellectual-only ministry I sustained the preaching only, the, the preaching, you know, and just bearing down on, on the correctness of the doctrine. I, actually, I didn't realize how I was, I was overbearing toward the people without realizing it. I know for me, I, I spent a few years um, doing campus ministry in, in Oxford, all these bright young things and again it's very a lot of them you know huge capacity for for thinking reading studying articulation and they want to be stretched they want to be fed I mean it was a it was a wonderful context in which to teach but the danger was that we we you know you don't go beyond just teaching these are the things I want to get into your head and once I've got them into your head my job is done and your job is done maybe you get them into someone else's head but um that, that's a glorious thing, but it's, it's woefully incomplete. And it's even um, a betrayal of the gospel, because what exploded across the Mediterranean world in the first century was not brilliant ideas only. Yeah. What exploded and captivated the Roman Empire was a new kind of community, a new experience of community. Well, that, that raises another dimension of this, which is what is at stake 
in having gospel culture isn't just the health internally of a church, though that is crucial, but actually our capacity to compel the world with the, with the you know our message of Jesus. And it seems to me that particularly in the cultural moment we find ourselves in now, there is so much anger, there is so much polarization, there's so much anxiety. Um, this kind of relational beauty, I think possibly more than any other time in my lifetime, will be so magnetic, so needed, so unusual, and so attractive to people who, who might not like what we believe, but find that kind of relational beauty very hard to resist. Yeah. Well, we've just begun. There's so much more we want to say and talk about. I'm thinking of lots of things right now. I really want to say right now, but this is enough for one podcast. So we love Crossway Books. Crossway is sponsoring this podcast, and uh, I was at the Gospel Coalition uh, National Gathering in Indianapolis, what, two weeks ago now, and went to the Crossway table in the book area. I walked around the table, and I was struck by the high quality of every book I saw on that table, the integrity, the faithfulness, the relevance of every single title on the table. One of the things I... I love about crossway no one has got a gun to my head right now making me say this um it's just simply that if there's a if there's a topic i need to read up on and i see a crossway book on that topic and maybe i don't know the name of the author it's not familiar to me the fact that it's a crossway book makes me think okay i know i can trust that i know that will be helpful and biblical they don't just publish anything Uh, they do have some theological standards, maybe not as good as they ought to be, because they publish me. But um, <laughs> but it, it's a it's a it's a really trustworthy publisher, so we're grateful to them. Yeah, and and one book I want to recommend to everybody is is by Francis Schaeffer, entitled "No Little People." It's a collection of his sermons, and several of them have become some of the most important things I've ever read outside the Bible. No little people. There are. No little people in the kingdom of God, even though we sometimes feel like it. All right. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Ray. See you next time. Okay. We're so grateful for you listening to this podcast. Uh, we don't take that for granted. Um, do visit tgc.org slash podcasts for more episodes and information. And we'd love it if you could subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you go for your podcasts. Thank you. The You're Not Crazy podcast was made possible by multiple team members at TGC. That team includes the hosts of the show, Ray Ortland and Sam Alberry, as well as Stephen Morales and Andrew LaPara as executive producer and producer, Heather Farrell, our podcast lead, Gabriel Reyes, our graphic designer, and Josh Diaz, our audio engineer. You're Not Crazy is a part of the Gospel Coalition Podcast Network. You can find more podcasts at tgc.org forward slash podcasts.